sisters in Christ on this joyous Christmas day. From God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. What special day is today? Go ahead, you can answer if you want to. Lily, I see, I know some of you answer. I'm going to call on Lily because I see her hand up in the air. Randy, maybe you can field it for me. It's New Year's Day, right? And I think if you ask just about anyone that you saw what special day is today, that's the answer they would give you. It's January 1st, it's New Year's Day, and that's true. But today is also a very special day in the calendar of the church here. Today is the eighth day of Christmas. And the eighth day of Christmas is very special, not because of eight maids of milking or anything in that silly song. The eighth day of Christmas is special because for hundreds, for for about a thousand and a half years, it's been the day that the church has celebrated a festival. On the first day of Christmas, on December 25th, we celebrate the festival of the birth of our Savior, Jesus. But on the eighth day of Christmas, on January 1st, we celebrate the festival of the naming and circumcision of our Savior Jesus. And so that's a long answer, but it'll fit into your first blank. On December 25th, we celebrate the events of Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. And on January 1st, we celebrate the events of Luke chapter 2, verse 21. Here's what it says. We heard it moments ago. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. And so for hundreds of years, the church has recognized that it's very important that Jesus was named Jesus. And they've also recognized that it was very important that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. What I'd like for you to ponder as we listen to our text this morning from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia is why was it significant for you that our Savior would be named Jesus, that he would be circumcised by his parents on the eighth day? We'll give our attention to our lesson from Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 23. Before the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs 
according to the promise. This is the word of our God. There's a lot of history packaged into that short little passage from Galatians chapter 3. And so I think we need to do some unpacking of the history of God's people to gather a fuller understanding of what it is he's talking about there. So we have to jump in our time machine. We have to travel back in time 4,000 years from now to the events that are recorded for us in Genesis chapter 17, where the Lord God Almighty came to a 99-year-old man named Abram, and established a promise with him, established a covenant, which is like a a promise that's set up between two parties with this man named Abram. And here's what he said. As for me, this is my covenant with you, Abram. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father, But your name will now be Abraham, father of nations, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your seed after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your seed, your offspring, after you. It was at that same time as God gave this promise to Abraham that he told Abraham for generations to come, every male from his descendants, every male even who lived in his camp would have to be circumcised. Every male eight days or older would receive circumcision. And this circumcision would be a sign. It would be a symbol for Abraham and his descendants, his people, of this covenant that God had given to them. It would be a reminder to them that in order to have this covenant relationship with God, something had to go. That sinful flesh, the sinful nature which is passed on from generation to generation to generation, from one sinful father to his children and on and on since the very beginning with Adam, that sinful flesh had to be cut away and done away with in order for them to have this relationship with God. And God would continue his words with Abraham again and again. He would come to him over the course of the years and he would tell him, Abraham, through your seed, through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. That was the covenant promise God had with Abraham. But as the years and the generations went by, Abraham's family ran into the trouble that they started to forget the core of God's covenant with them. The core was that promise that through a descendant of Abraham, it's talking about Jesus, I'll give you the spoiler alert, all nations on earth would be blessed But they lost track of the promise and they started to think that maybe the blessings would come simply because of who they were. Perhaps because of their lineage, because they came from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these great men whom God came and spoke to and gave his promises directly to. So after a while, after about 430 years, 
God gave a gift to the descendants of Abraham as he led them out from slavery in Egypt under a new leader named Moses. He gave them a gift to remind them where their hope came from. Or maybe really he gave them a gift to remind them where it did not come from. As Moses led the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt, they made a pit stop on the way to the promised land at a mountain called Sinai. And on that mountain, through Moses, God gave to his people the law, a set of regulations, of restrictions, and expectations that would serve a number of purposes. First, it would help the people to see how to live their lives as God's chosen people, the people from whom this Savior would come. They had an issue where they kept turning away from God and turning away from his promises, and so the law would help to train them to live as God's people. Second, when they reached the promised land, these rules and regulations would have the effect of setting them apart from all of the evil and wicked nations around them, establishing them as someone different, someone for whom God had a very special purpose because from them would come that descendant through whom all nations would be blessed. But first and foremost, the law that God gave to his people through Moses would have the effect of showing them just how worthless they were in and of themselves. Every broken commandment would be a reminder to them that their hope, their salvation could not come from them. Every bloody sacrifice demanded by that law would remind them of the cold truth that the soul who sins is the soul who must die. And so the law would be a reminder to them that their sins had locked them up in a cell and thrown away the key. That they were entirely hopeless as they looked at the law, hopeless of ever reaching this salvation that God had for them unless he was faithful to the promise that he had given to Abraham that from Abraham, from a descendant of Abraham, a blessing would come that would be for all people. And that's where St. Paul takes us in Galatians chapter 3. In the verses leading up to our text today, he makes the case that no one can be declared righteous by following the law. The law cannot bring salvation to everyone, but rather the chief purpose of the law is to show us how trapped we are, to show us our sin, and to show us our need for a savior. And so we go back to Galatians chapter 3. You can follow along in that first paragraph again. Before the coming of this faith, our faith in Jesus. So he's saying before Jesus came into this world, we were held under custody under the law. We were locked up until that faith, faith in Jesus and the redemption he brought that was to come, would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. The law is like a chaperone that finds you lost in the grocery store, grabs onto you and says, I'm not the one who's going to save you, but let's go and find that person. The law has no power to save us, 
but the law can keep us in check until we get to the one who is able to save us. And now, he says, now that this one, that faith, that Savior Jesus has come, now we are no longer under the guardian. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus revealed with his coming has set us free by revealing to us Jesus, our Savior, from sin. And from the very moment Jesus came into this world, it was clear that that was who he had come to be. God made sure of that. Even before Jesus was conceived in Mary, God sent his angel messenger Gabriel to Mary to tell her she was going to conceive and give birth to a child and she should name him Jesus. The Hebrew name Jeshua, Joshua, means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And he didn't just leave it with Mary, he sent that same angel to Joseph who told Joseph, you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so on the eighth day, when it was customary for the Jews to name their children, they gave him the name Jesus in accordance with what the angel had told them to do. And they circumcised him on that eighth day in accordance with what God had commanded them to do all the way back in Genesis chapter 17 when he established that covenant with Abraham. So on that eighth day, when that baby Jesus was circumcised. That's the first act of him carrying out God's law perfectly in our place. It's the first instance of the Lord God Almighty, creator of the heavens and earth, who had now come down into this world, humbled himself to be born as a human being, suffering, on our behalf, shedding his holy blood on our behalf. As he circumcised under the law that God had given even before Moses to his servant Abraham. But why does it have to take place on the eighth day? Why do the Jews have this custom of naming their children on the eighth day? Well, for one thing, I found out when we were pregnant with Amos there's something that our God knew that was very important to know. That as he created human beings, he had created them in such a way that when human babies are born, they don't have vitamin K in their bodies, the vitamin that's necessary for clotting blood. That actually doesn't start being produced until day four, and they don't have a full dose until day eight. So circumcising a child before that day would get that child into trouble. As remarkable as that is, I find it remarkable, maybe you don't, I don't know. I think there's more going on there with our God prescribing this to be on the eighth day. You see, way back in the beginning when God created the world, it took him six days to do it, or he took six days to do it, and on the seventh day he rested. And then he blessed that seventh day and made it a day of rest, a holy day. And in doing so, he set our world on this seven-day cycle that we call a week. And so it's been since the very beginning of time. 
that we mark our days by this seven-day cycle. But there was an interesting festival that God gave to his Old Testament people called the Festival of Tabernacles or the Festival of Tents. That was not a seven-day festival, but rather an eight-day festival. And in this Festival of Tabernacles, as they were celebrating the 40 years in the desert where they had lived in tents, and God had lived right there among them in the tabernacle as the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire dwelling among them. They were to celebrate that festival, and on not the seventh day, but on the eighth day of that festival, they were to celebrate the Sabbath. That festival meant not just to look back to the 40 years in the desert, but it was meant also to point them forward to the time when God the Word would become flesh and make his dwelling, make his tabernacle once again among his people. And so that eighth day Sabbath celebration was pointing them forward to the incarnation of God. And when Jesus came into this world, then that eighth day gains even more significance. And I think you know the story of how our Savior Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the first day of the week, a Sunday. On the sixth day of that week, on Friday, he fulfilled the work which he had come to accomplish as he gave his life for you on the cross. On the seventh day, the Sabbath, he rested, his body rested in the tomb. But on the eighth day, he rose again to new life. And not just rising to new life, but rising to bring that life to his disciples, to all who would place their trust in him. He announced that peace and forgiveness to his disciples and told them that he was going to send them the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so they waited for seven weeks, for 49 days, they waited until on the 50th day, the eighth Sunday after Easter, the Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost and a new era of God's people was born with the birth of the Christian church. And so the number eight, the eighth day, symbolizes for us, by God's design, new life in Christ. The resurrection life which he gives to us through his life and death and resurrection. The freedom from the chains and bonds of sin that is ours through Jesus and that became ours when we were washed into that name of Jesus by the saving waters of baptism. On that eighth Sunday after Easter, that day of Pentecost, Peter stood up in front of the people and proclaimed to them that they had killed God's Messiah. And they asked him, what should we do to be saved? His answer to them was not fulfill the law, be circumcised, become one of God's people. His answer was repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, Jesus, in dying on the cross, had fulfilled that symbol of circumcision. Remember, circumcision was a reminder to God's people that their sinful flesh had to be cut away and dealt with for them to have a relationship with God. Jesus, 
in his death on the cross, had once and for all cut away our sinful flesh and put it to death with himself there on the cross. He had taken it with him and buried it with him in his tomb. And so the symbol of circumcision had been fulfilled. And at the same time, then, Christ gives to his church a new symbol, the sacrament of holy baptism. Look at what Paul says in Galatians 3, verse 27, that our baptism does for us. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ, so in Christ Jesus you are children of God through faith. In baptism, then, we're brought into God's family, but even more intimately, Paul says here, you are brought into Christ. You become a part of him, a part of his body, so that this incorporation which takes place for us in the sacrament of baptism does two incredible things. On the first hand, it unites us with our Savior Jesus so that everything that is his becomes yours. His death and burial become your death and burial, that of your flesh, as we've said. But his resurrection to life on that eighth day on Easter Sunday becomes your resurrection to life also. And that's why our baptismal font is in the shape of an octagon. Many fonts you'll find are eight-sided to point us to that eighth-day resurrection of Jesus, that symbol of the new life in Christ that is not just a symbol, but is the gift that God gave to you in baptism. On the other hand, this incorporation into Christ that we receive at baptism also unites us with one another, with everyone else in the holy Christian church on earth. We are united through our Savior Jesus so that there should be no substantial divisions among us. In verse 28, Paul writes, there is now neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you all are one in Christ. And that's not just wishful thinking on Paul's part. That's not just a desire that he has for the church. That's a statement of fact about how God's church looks. So if we look around and we see here in our congregation at Mount Lebanon divisions between one group of people and another on the basis of race or gender or social status, if we look into our own hearts and, and we see their prejudices against a certain person or a certain group of people, we have to recognize that does not belong in the church, the body of Christ. And so wherever we find those distinctions, those prejudices, those divisions, we want to root them out and triumph over them by the love of our Savior Jesus, the love that he demonstrated for us when he gave his life for all of us on the cross. Earlier in Galatians chapter 3, Paul makes a big deal about that promise God gave to Abraham, the promise about Abraham's offspring, and how the word offspring or seed that God used there was singular. That he wasn't talking about all nations on earth being blessed through all of the Jews, but through one specific descendant of Abraham, the one named the Lord saves, Jesus. 
But look at what Paul says in the last verse of our text, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what Paul is saying is that when we think of that promise God gave to Abraham, through your seed all the nations on earth will be blessed, Paul is now saying, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. Because he says, you, in Christ, are that seed. You, through your baptism, are Christ to this world. You are the promised seed of Abraham, not because you are descendants of Abraham by blood, but because you are related to Jesus by blood, the blood which he shed for you to wash away your sins. And as amazing as that sounds, it gets even better because while you will be a blessing to all people, that promise is still yours personally too. That God sent Jesus to be a blessing to you. To shed his blood, not just on the eighth day, but at Calvary. To cleanse you from your sins to take away your sins so that yours might be the promised inheritance that God had given to him. The inheritance that will become yours on the final eighth day. The one that Easter itself is foreshadowing. After the seven seals that we read about in Revelation are opened, after the seventh trumpet sounds, then there will come a new day, a new dawn, a new creation when the one named Jesus, the Savior of all people, will rise like the Son of Righteousness with healing in his wings to give your resurrected body a, clo- a robe of immortality so that you might dwell together with your Lord forever in heaven. Amen. Please stand. Now may the peace of our Savior Jesus, that peace which transcends understanding, guard your hearts and minds in him until the day of life everlasting. Amen.